My name is Matt Moran. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, I, hope, I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. We're now four days away from the start of 2015. This is actually the second year in a row that I've preached in this Sunday right between um, Christmas and New Year's. And I would say, if we're, be, if we're being honest, and we are, in some sense, this is a little bit of a funny Sunday. Um, to start with, half of you, at least half of you, are transparently wearing new clothes. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are traveling. We're all still coming down from the high of Christmas. Um, there people, there's a lot of coming and going at this time of year. But I actually love this time between Christmas and New Year's to bring God's Word as we head into 2015. I'll explain exactly why in a moment. But let's pray and ask God for mercy as we start to open his word. Father, we, um, as we gather around your word, we confess that uh, we're weak people. We're easily distracted. We don't always love your word the way that we should, the way that we ought to. But right now, confessing that, I pray that you would illuminate each of us and empower me to speak your word by the power of your spirit to make it clear as I ought to speak. And I pray that you would give us hearts to hear and to respond in faith and to obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, here's why I'm particularly excited to open up God's word with you this morning. Uh, it's almost the start of the new, new year, and for many of us, uh, New Year is a time that where we kind of start to think about the fresh uh, new year in front of us, and we start to think about what the future is going to look like. I was reading, uh, according to Forbes, that 40% of, or more of Americans use this time to make New, year, New Year's resolutions of some kind. So, in other words, goals that they have for self-improvement in the upcoming year. Uh, if you want a point of reference, 40% of Americans is more people than watch the Super Bowl. So that's, like a, that's a lot of people. Uh, we like to, not everyone, but we like to make plans for how our lives are going to improve for the better as we, and the turning of the calendar gives us a good opportunity to do that. So for people who have this type of proclivity, we set goals or we make plans, and it's often around issues of health or money or work. So we make plans to sometimes to lose weight or to uh, be able to do some new physical accomplishment like running farther or faster, or we stick to, we say something like, this year we're going to stick to a budget or we have a new financial plan. Or other people think more in terms of experiences, like in 2015, they're going to travel to a new place, or they're going to t pick up some new skill or hobby. And I think, generally speaking, we would say that is, uh, that's kind of typical of American culture. Like, we would say that America is, generally speaking, a highly individualistic culture. We value, as a culture, independence, hard work, self-reliance, and we love stories of people who work hard and successfully achieve their goals. But it isn't, maybe it isn't surprising, that it often seems like people that are achieving their New Year's resolutions or achieving their goals are actually in the minority. The statistical truth is something like 8% of people actually keep those resolutions. If you work out at all, you know that this upcoming week in January, it's going to be hard to even find a treadmill at the Melrose Y. But by February, March, not so hard. That's, that's um, pretty typical. That's pretty typical of the way a lot of people interact around the, the goals that they set for improvement, right? And that's kind of often the way that we conceptualize 
our world in this sort of individualistic framework. So we think, here's me, and then I have, then my world includes family and kids, depending on life stage, uh, work, maybe even a second job or a need for a second income, uh, possibly a couple hobbies, friends that we have, things that we like to do in our spare time. Then you think about commitments that you have to the community, commitments that you have to, to church, meetings you need to attend, maybe you're involved in service. And keeping all of that stuff balanced and trying to improve in those different areas is exceptionally hard work, right? So sometimes it feels impossible, and that's where we get those old cliches about juggling balls or spinning plates. And if you talk to most people that either don't go to church or stop going to church a long time ago, it's very hard to convince them that this needs to become or maybe re-become a priority. And that's true even if they aren't like actively disdainful of church or haven't been wounded in some way by the church, because the truth is they're more disinterested. And one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons that's true is simply because this issue of time. People already feel like they're burdened, they're loaded down by keeping all those other things that I mentioned up in the air, and they would say, well, that kind of feels like another commitment. How am I going to fit that in? So, as people who live in an individualistic culture, we do love that the gospel teaches us that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God forgives our sins. We love that. We rejoice in that, right? We sing about it, and we will stand before God as individuals we will personally stand before God and give an account of our lives. So in my sin and in my weakness, I cling personally to the atoning death of Jesus on my behalf. That is my only hope. However, we often forget or don't realize that in the gospel, we're also adopted into the family of God. In other words, when Jesus saves you, he pulls you out of your individual orbit and he shifts the center so that you and I are no longer in the middle. He takes us out of the middle and he takes our hands off the plates or the balls that we're juggling and he puts the family of God in the middle. I want to get into that in, that te- in this text, but that's a beautiful and humbling thing. So let's get into this text today. It's a perfect example of what I mean, although I'm not sure that would be readily apparent on the first reading. So let's get oriented to this story, and I want to do a little bit of background and start in, in the back of Acts 2 and get into the story in Acts 3 of Peter and John and the lame man. So Acts 2.42 is, is a passage we've already preached from. This is, we're going to start right there, Acts 2.42-47. Luke is describing the shared life of the early church. And as I read, I'm going to emphasize the distinctly corporate nature of what's happening as I read. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and with generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you can see the corporate nature of those in in so many of those words. They were devoting themselves always on every soul. They were all together. They had all things in common. They shared their possessions as any had need. They were eating together day by day. The Lord added to their number. So there are so many things that Luke is telling us here, but we can see clearly that Luke is saying this church had a shared life together. Now from this beautiful description of the community that Luke is describing... Luke transitions into a story that features only two of the apostles, Peter and John. And if we're not careful, we might think that the location of this story isn't necessarily important. We might think that this story of the healing of a lame man is just a great example of the power of God in the early church. And it is, but it is more than that. There's something that I want to point to that's very meaningful and intentional about the location of this story, of this healing narrative right after Luke's description of the communal life of the church. In other words, what I need you to understand is that Luke's emphasis on the shared life of the community is all over this second story, but it might not be quite as obvious. So let's read this. This is Acts 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily, at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, so Peter and John go up to the temple. They see a man who has been lame from birth. They see a man that everyone would recognize as being unable to walk. He asks them for money the same way that he asks everyone. And instead of reaching into his pocket for change, Peter doesn't reach there. He reaches for the man's arm, and he lifts him to to his feet. But the man's feet and his ankles are miraculously made strong. He starts leaping around and shouting and getting excited the way that only someone who has never walked before would be able to get excited. He's praising God, and everyone else is freaking out because they don't know what's going on. They are filled with wonder and amazement because this isn't the type of thing that happens. This is unbelievable. This is an incredible story. It's a physical miracle. Someone who has never been able to walk before is now walking and leaping around. 
Okay, so let me ask you a question. Why is John in the story? What is he even doing? We see what Peter is doing. Peter's the one talking and healing. What is John even doing? So we know that all scripture is inspired by God, and we know that these words aren't here for no reason. We know that just the paragraph before, Luke has been rhapsodizing about the beauty of this early church. We know that Luke is meticulous and purposeful in all the details that he provides. We know that words and ink weren't cheap back then, but John does nothing, literally nothing in this story, and he gets four mentions in this paragraph. So why is that? Let's look at it. First, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Secondly, the text tells us Peter and John were seen by the lame man as they were about to go in. Then when they encountered each other, Peter looked at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. Look at me and John. So why do we keep talking about John? He seems like a bystander, right, in the story. He's not the primary actor. In fact, there is not any single part of his contribution that seems essential right now. Why does Luke keep using John's name? I think if we look, we see Luke is telling us something very essential about the way the church works. He's telling us that the work, Jesus' work, is never actually done alone. Let me expand on what I mean by that. If we flash back to the Gospels, we can see that Jesus' tradition of always sending the disciples out two by two is continuing. In Mark 6, when Jesus sent the disciples out, it says he called the twelve and he sent them out two by two, always together, never alone. I don't think there's something magical about the two by two formula, but I do think that built into the DNA of the ministry initiated by Jesus is that the work is done together. There's more here than, than there's work that needs to be done together and not individually. So, okay, so we can look at that, this account of healing and say, okay, great, Peter and John healed the man together. Okay, what is that, how is that supposed to inform me? How is that supposed to be meaningful? I haven't healed anyone lately. We haven't healed anyone lately. What is that supposed to be getting at? Okay, so maybe we could, maybe we could agree that supernatural healing is not necessarily normative in the life of the church. But let's look at how much this story can actually inform the way that we think about our shared life as a church. So first, this was ordinary. They were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. This was just something they did. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. It's the time of the afternoon sacrifice, which was accompanied at that time by the prayer of the congregation. Three o'clock is when the people got together to pray. Peter and John were going at 3 p.m., just doing the ordinary things that Christians do, together, praying. Secondly, this was intentional, right? It was scheduled. It had a spot on the calendar. 3 p.m. was the time. They did it day after day after day. That was their time. Third, okay, they had limited resources, and I think this is huge. How often do we look at a situation and say, I agree, that's a need, but there isn't anything that I can do. I don't have any resources to be helpful. So our tendency at that point is to walk away and be overwhelmed. We see a situation and say, 
I don't have any silver and gold. I wish that I did, but I don't. I see this situation, but I can't see any tangible way that I can help. But Peter said, what I do have, I give you. Together, Peter and John carried the hope of the gospel. It was ordinary, right? It was intentional, but it was full of faith. And then what happens in that moment? There's power. He takes him by the right hand and he raises him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. He begins walking and leaping and praising God. God, in this story, uses two people together to do something that they do every day, ordinary, intentional, full of faith, and he uses that to work a miracle. It isn't like every time they went to temple, someone got healed. It isn't like the, the middle of the day is always miracle time. But this day was this man's day of salvation. He was healed on this day. And again, they did it together. They went to the temple together. He saw Peter and John. He directed his gaze at him, and Peter said, look at us. John, this whole time, is present, but he's invisible. He's doing nothing. But at the same time, Luke paints him as essential, needing to be there in the background for this story. He's hidden. Maybe Peter's the one up front. But Peter needs John. Another thing that's really fascinating about this is that John is not in the background because of his lack of gifting. If we know John, he wrote a gospel. If we know John, he described himself as the one who Jesus loved. John authored the book of Revelation. John is one of the most important characters of the entire New Testament. It would have been, if we keep following this narrative, Peter follows this up by preaching a great sermon. Peter had already preached at Pentecost. John might have been like, okay, you did Pentecost. Now it's my turn in chapter 3, right? I get to preach now. John didn't get to do anything except go to jail with Peter. He's just there in the background. Peter gets the spotlight. But John is essential. So, okay, I'm saying he's invisible, he's obscure, he's essential. But how does that look, what does that actually look like in the life of the church? Well, I thought about this, and I can tell you how it works in my, in my life. I hope all of you got, to, got a chance this week to see the 2014 Seven Mile Road year in review and pictures that we posted on the website. I, w- I looked at that uh, while my family and I were out of town, and it was, I just forget. I mean, things happen so fast, I, I forget, and it was great to be able to look back and see God's faithfulness to us in this past year. But it also made me think what a year in review would look like if it's specifically focused on Laurel and I in the previous year on work that we had done. And I thought, if that happened, there would be pictures of me studying and praying to preach and teach. There would be pictures of a lot of meetings with gospel communities, a lot of time in people's homes. There would be a lot of pictures this year, particularly of Laurel and I sitting with couples getting ready for marriage. There would be pictures of a lot of one-on-one discipleship, a lot of late-night meetings upstairs with the pastors, a lot of times together in prayer. But you would have to also see more if you looked at that year. If you looked closely, you'd see a lot of other people in the background of those pictures. A couple weeks ago, uh, Laurel and I had a late-night meeting over here at the church building. And this is like, this is one example I could give of literally dozens. Um, 
So that meeting was from like 6 till past 10. And Glenn and Margaret came over to watch our kids. And we, when we came back, it was past 10 p.m. 10 p.m. is too late to keep your babysitters on a Sunday night. After 10 p- <laughs> You know, after 10, Masterpiece Theater is over. There's nothing good left on PBS. But when we got back that night, our kids were asleep in bed. The house had been cleaned. The macaroni and cheese had been swept up off the floor. And I think Margaret not only got the macaroni and cheese from that night, she got down on her hands and knees and got all the November macaroni and cheese off the floor. There were Christmas cookies on the table. And, and I thought, you know, our life doesn't work without the family of God coming alongside of us. It doesn't work without Margaret and Glenn. It doesn't work without Bree. It doesn't work without, it doesn't work without Katie or Doug and Tracy or Rob and Patty or Dave and Kelly or so many more. It doesn't work. And I could go on and on, but the point here in Acts is that Peter is the main actor, but he's not the hero. John is secondary, and he's not the hero either. Peter and John are both essential, but the story is about Jesus. The story is about Jesus and his resurrection power continuing through the life of the church. And the church, the New Testament calls the family of God. So let me apply this in three simple ways from this text as we go into this new year together. First, we do need to look long and hard and study and reflect on how the Bible does describe the church. We need constantly the corporate reminder of the church to balance our tendency towards individualism. I'm not really knocking individualism. There are a lot of beautiful things about our culture, but it needs to be balanced by how the Bible describes the church. We often talk about church strictly as a place that we go to or as a physical building. And that can be helpful to a certain extent, but it does not get at the robust way that the New Testament describes the church. The metaphors that the New Testament uses for the church are words like family, household, body. There are many more, but those, are, those get at more than a physical description. Matt read earlier from Ephesians 2 at the start of this service. And Ephesians 2 says, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are members of the household of God. Jesus came and preached peace to individual people. And through Jesus, we have access to God the Father. And because of that, we are no longer strangers and homeless. We're no longer on the outer circle. But we have received a new citizenship, and we've become members of the household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And in the household of God individuals function as they are connected to the larger whole. Jesus takes us out of our own individual orbit, and he puts the family of God in the center. So an individual would evaluate church or community or really any other civic thing that they're part of 
on the basis of what did I get out of it. An individual would be enthusiastic about the idea of community until it threatens his or her autonomy. But people that know that they have been adopted out of death into life, into the family of God, know that their lives are now about bringing glory to Jesus and to serving the household of God. So first, we need to really believe the way that the Bible describes the church. Secondly, as we go into the new year and we think about what resources we have, individuals who plan change have to make a careful assessment of their resources. Before they make a, before they make a resolution, you have to think about, do I have the energy, do I have the money, do I have the time to set that goal and achieve it? And some of us, probably if we're being honest, would come into this year saying, I'm already a little stretched. You might be able to say, not only could I say silver and gold have I none, I also, like, sleep have I none, and time have I none, and energy have I none. Peter and John, in this story, they know what they have and they know what they didn't. They know what they didn't have and they know what they have. What they did have was together they carried the hope of the gospel. We all have that. Okay? Our capacity and our giftings are absolutely varied and different, and that's beautiful. But together, we do carry the hope of the gospel. And then third, in light of our standing as members of the household of God, in light of this reality that together we carry the gospel, let me ask you this. As you plan, as you think about the new year, who are you standing in the background for? And who are you serving? Who are you coming alongside with prayer, with acts of service, with a willingness to lay aside your own agenda? This time between Christmas and New Year's is perfect because as Christians, we believe that someone, that God sent someone for us who is hidden, who is obscure, who is marginalized, and who was essential that we might live. And New Year's for those who are still in their own individual orbit, is a time to lay plans for individual achievement. But New Year's, for those of us who've been adopted into the family of God, is just a fresh reminder that the one who is hidden and essential, who came in obscurity, came and wiped the slate clean on our behalf. And New Year's is just a calendar reminder of that. So I hope that this New Year is an opportunity for you to plan a little bit. But let me encourage you, let, let any of those plans be informed by your identity of one who, as one who's been adopted from death and pulled into life and brought into the family of God. Let's pray. Father, we don't don't deserve now and didn't deserve ever that you would rescue us from, your, from our sin by sending your son. And we don't deserve to be members of your family, but we praise you for your grace, that that is real. And I pray that that truth would pervade our, our souls in deeper and deeper ways and that that would overflow into love and service for one another in the family of God. We pray for that. Amen.